as I read Exodus chapter 17. Hear the word of God. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And and the people complained against Moses and said, why is it you've brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand the rod which you, uh, with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb. And you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. Because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men to go out, uh, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron and Hur went up uh, to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat upon it. And Aaron and her supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And the Lord and Moses built an altar and called its name. The Lord is my banner, for he said, because the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And let us pray. Father in heaven. Again, as we find your word is opened and read, uh, we find, along with Christians through the ages, uh, a wonderful opportunity for the word to be sowed or sown. And in the hearts of your people, we understand that every time it is sown, there are four possibilities and only one of them good. Only one of them is a fruit bearing possibility. And yet uh, we, we pray that we all, including me, would eagerly await to see what you are doing and to look in faith for good things to come through the preaching and uh, to find that you are blessing your people. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have anything in, in mind uh, about what we've been reading, you will notice that there's a familiar pattern that's unfolding. Uh, in the first part of the chapter, it's almost as though uh, we say to ourselves, wait a second, uh, didn't, didn't we just read that a chapter ago and the chapter before that? And in fact, that's exactly the case. Uh, Chapter 15, chapter 16, now chapter 17, the same pattern is unfolding where Israel sets out from a place of rest and refreshment 
to journey once more, only to find in their journeys and their new destination fresh trials. As at Mara at the end of chapter 15, so at Rephidim in chapter 17, they find no water. And you know in chapter 16, they find no food. But that problem is resolved once and for all with the manna. But the problem of water was something that still confronted them in the desert. And as there in chapter 15, so here in chapter 17, they complain to Moses. Only here it's a little bit different. In fact, it's a lot worse. Because now they're contending with him and demanding in anger that he give them water to drink. They're furious with Moses and he even says to the Lord, which gives us a sense of how they said to us, give us water to drink, that they were furious and ready to kill him. They were tired of these trials in the wilderness. So it would seem at this point that they were growing tired of what the Lord was doing and they had reached their breaking point. Again, Moses says, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. We can imagine there his exasperation at the people themselves, not so much with the Lord and his providence. And from this it appears how little faith they had and how much sin was now prevailing in their hearts, as we will see. Sadly, uh, before, just before the Lord gives the law, and as we will find unfolding in the chapters and the books to come, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, a story, sadly, as we know, we read in 1 Corinthians 10 of Israel's apostasy. But we also see in this trial at Rephidim, another trial happened here, and this is something which is not familiar. This is a new incident. We are on the heels of their relief in the desert. God sends the Amalekites to trouble them in the camp. He provides relief, but then he sends these troublers to trouble them. And so in reality, in chapter 17 at Rephidim, their new destination in the wilderness, there are two new trials here. And really, it's the second of the two, which is, I think, most interesting and edifying to consider, if only because it's something new. But let us begin with the first of these and just look at these two fresh trials. The first being the waters at Meribah. In Rephidim. Aside from the normal features here that we've noticed before, we see now a fresh element of sin, which can be explained in various ways. With each passing provision from the Lord, their unwillingness to believe was less excusable. It was clear by their anger at Moses that they were driven by fleshly lusts rather than by spiritual principles. In other words, now it was as clear as ever that they lacked faith and they were walking by sight. They were missing the point. God brought them into the wilderness to test them, to teach them to learn to trust God. But it was a lesson they refused to learn and things just kept getting worse and worse. And now it is said twice, if you think of the aggravating features of the sin of Israel, twice that they were guilty of tempting the Lord. Verse three, verse seven. In fact, uh, the place is memorialized by that fact. It is named Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? In other words, it, what is memorialized is not the Lord's provision from the rock. You might have thought that. Now we do find, uh, you know, the, the, the Lord is my banner. That's at the end of the chapter. So typically what's memorialized is what the Lord does. But here what is memorialized is what the people did in their sin. It is named after they're complaining, they're grumbling, they're tempting the Lord. To say here something I don't think we've seen yet, that they were guilty of tempting the Lord, is a various charge and offense. And yet I've often wondered to myself, what does it mean to tempt the Lord? You have to admit, that's a bit of an odd expression. 
We might speak of Satan tempting the believer, but what does it mean for the believer to tempt the Lord? Who would think to call sinning against God tempting him? Tempting him to what? At any rate, for my part, I've always found that to be something of a strange expression. Uh, But if you think about it, perhaps it isn't so hard to understand what Moses is telling them. What they were doing was tempting him to kill them. They were now trying his patience. And what Moses tells them in saying this is that is a very dangerous thing to do. You ought not to tempt the Lord like this. And eventually we will see the danger itself overtakes them. They tempt the Lord to kill them, and so he does. God is slow to provocation, but it would be a great mistake to test him in this. To test the limits, to see how far he's willing to go. How long he is willing to abide our sin before he casts us off and destroys us and allows us to make a shipwreck of our faith. That is not the kind of test that you want to bring. Or to engage in. Moses is saying, this is a very foolish policy. You're testing the limits. You're tempting him by your sin and fleshly outlook. What they were doing in essence was to say, and we see this in verse 7, what of this God? Is he really so great after all? Is he really so good? Is he really all that you say he is? Does he even exist? And if he does, where is he? Is the Lord among us or not? How ready they were to unbelieve at the first instance of difficulty. Matthew Henry, they questioned his essential presence, whether there was a God or not. They questioned also, I would add to Henry, his promise and his providence. Though you find Henry saying that as well later on in his commentary. They were questioning, in other words, not only his personal existence But whether he was good in his word and whether he was present with the people. What a foolish thing to say. Yet it is is exactly what was in their hearts. Where is the Lord? And in contending against Moses, his servant for water, instead of patiently seeking from God their provision, it wasn't wrong, you know, to say, Lord, we're thirsty. Will you give us water to drink? That wasn't the problem. It was that they concluded based upon their thirst that God wasn't there. And now they were contending with Moses himself, testing him to see if he could do it. You give us water to drink, Moses, and doubting if he could, and they were ready to kill him if he couldn't. It is not a very good picture at all. And so let me say this by way of application. As for the repeated nature of this sin, it is almost exasperating to witness the pattern uh, repeating itself over and over again. How is it that Israel, rather than growing worse, isn't growing better? It's almost impossible to believe that they still hadn't learned the lesson that they would grumble at the presence of no water. Well, it's exasperating to witness, I would say, again, by way of application. This is humbling to say, but it's true. Exasperating unless you've been in the church for very long. When we see this repeated cycle of sin, it's almost obnoxious and it's tiresome. Yet this is what we have to deal with all the time in the church. We hope it never gets quite this bad or else we have greater problems to worry about. But there is something in this picture which resembles every church. The constant dripping of complaints and murmurings and testing the Lord. A spirit which, like Israel, is too ready to find fault with the minister and the elders for every difficulty the church finds and in which she finds herself. A readiness to to place too much expectation at his feet 
and to demand that he provide for every need or else be abandoned. And even to confront him in anger, in hot anger. Beloved, remember what the New Testament has to say about this generation. The the history of Israel in the wilderness was recorded for our admonition and our instruction. And we ought to see in this a picture of the church. A picture which is very often an unhappy one. And we find ourselves mirrored to us in unhappy ways. But the point is, we ought to do better. We ought to do much better. And when we find that we are mirroring the life of Israel, as from time to time, no doubt we find that we are Contending with the minister, contending with the elders, contending ultimately with the Lord, grumbling, complaining in anger, which is a work of the flesh. There's only one thing to do, and that's to repent and to believe in the Lord. And to realize that we're falling into the same sad example. But the most amazing thing about this story, in the first part, the waters at Meribah, is the Lord's tremendous patience with the church. He bears with them even though they tempt him to destroy them. He is gracious still. He looks after them and meets their need. He is not ready yet to remove the lampstand from their midst. And that's the thing which is almost shocking to witness. That God bears with their sinful complaints. He treats them as though they had faith when they had none. He was ready now to tend to their needs whether they rightly sought him or not. And he does so in a way which is remarkable, which is uh, greatly accommodated to strengthen the faith of the people, even though it didn't succeed in doing so. He was dealing with them in just the way they needed to be dealt with. He tells Moses to strike the rock with his staff so that water will gush out, which points to two things in this passage. And then there's a third thing we might notice from the New Testament. The first thing was the place of Moses among them. It was wrong for them To contend with Moses like this. To put him to the test and say you give us water to drink. Or else in essence uh, they were implying that they were ready to kill him. We notice again and again that the people were a great grief to Moses. And yet what the Lord does here is he points to Moses and he says. Here is my faithful servant. Here is someone that you ought to trust and you ought to esteem. He lifts them up in the eyes of the people. He might have uh, given them water to drink apart from Moses. That wasn't what he did. He was, in a subtle way, rebuking them for their sin. Again, exalting him in the eyes of the people. But the second thing we see is what the Lord does through Moses in accommodating this miracle to their lack of faith. He gives them water, not from a body of water, but from a rock. Which is interesting to notice. Could he not have simply led them to a place of water as in times past? Well, of course, we know he could. But we know nothing about God if we thought or if we think that's what he was likely to do here. No, he gets water in the most unlikely of ways. In order to demonstrate and to highlight his power and his might. To do something only God could do. And to show Israel how foolish she was not to trust him. If God God can get water by the rock, there is no need to fear that we will ever be without water. Now, that's what they ought to have learned. Of course, we know they don't. Even though God makes it easy for them to believe, still they go on in unbelieving. But the third thing we notice from this, which is even more remarkable than that, is that this incident is used in 1 Corinthians 10 as a metaphor or a type of Christ in the New Testament. He says uh, the, the rock from which the waters gushed forth. 
is Christ. In other words, he does something uh, that that we've been doing. He spiritualizes or we could even say he allegorizes, but in the truest possible sense. Obviously, Christ was not literally the rock, but the rock resembled Christ. It represented Christ to the people. And if you know anything about what Jesus says in the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, you will understand that he's speaking to Israel in a way they ought to have understand, understood. That I am the living water, which if a man uh, partakes of, he will never thirst. Just as he said of the, of the manna. I am the true food, the, the food which comes down, or the manna which comes down from heaven, which if a man eats, he will never hunger. It was a picture of the salvation which is found in Christ. And again, Israel ought to have, she didn't, but she ought to have argued uh, from the lesser to the greater. If God can give me water to drink from the rock for a day, surely, well, in this manner, surely he can give me water which will make me never thirst. Again, that is exactly the language that we find in the Gospels. God was teaching Israel to look for the better water which satisfies forever. He was teaching her to look for the water and the food which endures forever and to find it in Christ. But one of the things that we discover from 1 Corinthians 10 is that she did partake of this water. And she did drink of this drink. All drank the same spiritual drink. They drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. They drank from Christ. They fed from Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. We think similarly of what was said. Uh, again, with the same illustration in mind, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, that it's possible to partake of the good things of the kingdom of God and yet still to fall away in apostasy. What is being described and what we find in Israel is a mere formal drinking and a mere formal eating. A partaking of Christ formally in the church. That's something you're able to do. You're able to listen to sermons. You're able to partake of the Lord's Supper. If you were an Israelite, you're able to drink the water in the wilderness and to receive from Christ truly and yet still miss the point. What was lacking? Well, we know what was lacking. What was lacking was faith and spiritual discernment. The whole thing that I've been contending for all along. That was the fundamental flaw in Israel. She reduced everything to its bare minimum. And we'll see that again in the second point. Let me come there now. By its bare minimum, I mean its most worldly elements. Missing the great spiritual truths and lessons which are contained in these things. But as I say, the second episode or the second test, which begins in verse eight, is far more interesting to consider. And so we'll spend the greater part of the sermon considering that, if only because it's something new. Here we have the war with the Amalekites. The first question we have about them is, who were they? I don't want to spend any more time on this than a single sentence, just to say that they were the descendants of Esau, which is interesting in itself to consider if you think of the conflict between Jacob and Esau. But I won't. I won't say anything more about that. More important is this question. Why were they now attacking Israel? And what did the battle represent? And we have a very famous episode in this battle with, with Moses holding the staff up. Well, which is obviously something I'm going to make a great deal of. This is one of the remarkable stories of the Old Testament. And in the position and the posture of Moses, we discover what the battle represented. Well, for one thing, we could say very simply that the battle represented another test. God was trying their faith once again, as he was apt to do. 
And perhaps we could even notice with Matthew Henry that there is a kind of chastisement here from the Lord for her grumblings over the water. He provided the water, but he immediately chastises them for it. And we'll notice that element uh, more and more as the history unfolds. God judging them even, which goes beyond chastisement. But more significant in answering the question, what did the battle represent and why were the Amalekites now attacking Israel in the wilderness? We see here once more again the enmity between the two seeds being worked out on the plane of history in real time. Remember what is said in the garden. The serpent enters in. He tempts the woman. Adam and Eve fall in their sin. And the Lord promises that, uh, that the woman, through her childbearing, will save humanity. And she will give birth to the Savior. But that between her seed and the seed of the serpent, there will be an enduring enmity. Chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis that is in many ways an explanation of the whole of world history and certainly of biblical history. And as we read of this uh, unfolding conflict throughout biblical history, we should always remember the enmity between the two seeds. That is what is springing up here again. Israel might have thought it was over in Egypt, but it wasn't. They hadn't got very far uh, when they found that Satan was on their heels once again. But here there's a new element and a new stage in the development of this idea. It isn't just the same thing repeating itself, but something new and something further. Of course, the conflict between Israel and Egypt was of the same kind. It was a spiritual and religious one so that it would be wrong to view it purely as a national conflict between Israel and Egypt. And there, as Egypt held Israel in bondage, God freed her from that bondage by his own power. In fact, if you consider the details of that history... Aside from the staff of Moses and the flight of the people, Israel did nothing in that battle. The Lord uh, was the one who fought for Israel throughout. She simply followed the Israel, she being Israel, and he did it all. And by his own sovereign power and many remarkable miracles, he freed Israel from her bondage, bringing her into a state of freedom and nationhood, and now led her into the wilderness to be taught and instructed of him. But now what she discovers, as I say, the enmity had not uh, been overthrown. In fact, it remained. And it would be a constant conflict in her life. In her quest to enter the promised land in the wilderness, new conflicts awaited her there. This being the first. That's what makes this remarkable in many ways. The first real conflict that Israel confronted now as a nation. Her entry into the promised land would not be uncontested. And the forces that opposed her before in Egypt opposed her still, though taking new forms. But it was the same old conflict, the same old enmity between the two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So that is the first thing to notice as we try to understand the significance of the battle in the wilderness of Rephidim. But here we must also notice how the battle is to proceed. And this is where Moses comes in, but not just Moses, also Joshua. In this conflict, we notice the differing places these two men assume. They both, you could say, assume their posts in battle, but they're highly different. Each of these assigned by the Lord. Joshua is assigned to battle. He is to be the captain of the army to fight for Israel. And Moses, as the minister and the prophet, is to assume a place on a hill, praying into intercessory prayer for the people in battle. And there's an interesting uh, point to notice here about the life of Israel herself in this twofold aspect. An indication here, as we will see, we will see later, that Israel was to be more than a church, 
and also more than a nation, she was to assume the form of a theocracy, which, which is just to say both at once. She was a church and a nation all in one. As Vol says, offering what I think is a very good definition of a theocracy in his book, Biblical Theology, he says civil and religious life were inextricably interwoven. But he is quick to add, and this is something we also find here as we think of these two elements living side by side, the civil and the uh, religious in the national life of Israel. He says the religious one had the preeminence. It is that for the sake of which the other exists. Even in Israel, the preeminence, the priority was given not to the civil, but to the religious. However, this was to become, as we know, a great point of confusion for Israel. One of the ways that she uh, operated on the lowest common denominator. One of the ways she failed to exercise faith. She tended to miss the point when it came to her own existence as a theocracy, giving priority to the wrong of the two, to the civil rather than the religious, or to confuse them. So thoroughly that she failed to grasp the true spiritual nature of her existence. To subsume the, the, the religious under and into the civil, I mean. But the point here is just to notice that both were present in these two men, Moses and Joshua. And in their two tasks. One to fight, another to pray. But we clearly see in this incident the priority of which uh, Voss speaks. The priority is clearly the spiritual and the religious, and it is, uh, it is uh, for that, that uh, well, how does he put it? I'm not sure I can repeat the quote. He says, it is that for the sake of which the other exists. The civil exists for the sake, in other words, of the religious. What we notice in the battle is that her success depended less upon Joshua's fighting and more upon it in Moses' prayer and his staff. Which we see clearly in the fact that so long as the staff was raised in prayer, she, she succeeded in battle or, and prevailed. But as soon as in his weariness it drooped, then she was overcome in battle. And so the victory was less a matter of her fighting, her carnal, uh, worldly fighting. Uh, it was more a matter of the prayers of Moses. And this was meant to teach Israel where the true priority lay. That her success as a nation in this great conflict between the two seeds in which she was engaged just now depended more than anything else upon her prayers. Now, it depended on the other thing as well, and I'll get to that in a moment. And I, I think I might have misspoke when I said carnal. I don't mean to say carnal in the sense that it was bad, but it wasn't as much the religious as the civil side. You have a man engaged in war, but you also have a man engaged in prayer. And the greater priority was given to that. But the other thing we notice in this priority of the spiritual is that this is the harder of the two. And I'm going to plead for Moses a little bit here and do something that might be a little obnoxious to you. And, and that is to plead for the place of the minister and the people. But I can't help but do so because that's what we find here in Exodus 17. And we'll especially see it in Exodus 18 when Jethro says, you better get yourself some elders. Or you'll never be able to shepherd the people. You can't do it on your own. We already see that here. The spiritual work I'm saying is the harder work. Moses had the harder task. We might think Joshua did, but we would be wrong. Matthew Henry, we do not find Joshua's hands were heavy in fighting, but Moses' hands were heavy in praying. The more spiritual any service is, the more apt we are to fail and flag in it. 
Now this is something that I find to be invariably true, and I think you would agree with me. That the spiritual work is always the harder work. But let me speak from the perspective of Moses and of the minister. I can't explain it. Perhaps one day I will understand it. But I find preaching to be the most exhausting thing in the world. And I've asked other ministers and they agree with me. One thinks here of Jesus in the boat uh, having fallen fast asleep because he was preaching all day in the midst of a storm. He was exhausted. I also find, and I think you will agree, that Sundays are sometimes the most tiring of all days. We want them to be the most refreshing, but we find at times that Monday is the day we're most exhausted. There is something deeply uh, difficult and trying and taxing in spiritual labors. It's difficult to get back to work on Mondays. I don't want to minimize the kind of refreshment we enjoy on Sundays, but I do want to emphasize this aspect, that the spiritual work is always of the hardest. It's always the hardest. It is the most demanding and exacting. You can't do spiritual work halfway. You can't take half measures. You have to give it your all. And when you do, you will find that your strength is failing like Moses here. You will discover the truth of what Jesus says to the disciples as they were told to pray, but they kept falling asleep. While he prayed in Gethsemane that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Not only is the flesh weak, but the flesh is opposed to the spirit, as Paul later says. One of the remarkable things to notice here is how Moses simply couldn't do it on his own. He depended on the help of these two men, Aaron and Hur. He required their help to keep his hands raised. And without their help, he was unable to do so. And if they had not come along to help him, to assist him in prayer, then Israel would have fallen in battle. There's no way to escape that conclusion. And so Moses was like the man we read about this morning. In fact, I hadn't even thought of that until I preached that sermon this morning. He was the man whose hands were drooping down, quite literally. And he needed his brothers to come along with him and to help him strengthen his hands so that he could pray for the people. Uh, what what a, a fitting and a helpful picture of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12. Exactly what the writer was telling us to do. Strengthen the hands which, uh, which droop down. Don't forget, beloved, the minister sometimes gets weary, too. And so he needs his brothers to help him and to bear him up, to lift up his hands in holy prayer. And it shouldn't be hard to see why. It's because, as Henry says, of the nature of the work. And so I find here, as I said, a kind of prelude to what we read of in chapter 18, an instance of uh, the impossibility of Moses doing this task on his own, where we find Jethro urging Moses to raise up elders to assist him in that work. He tells him, you can't do it all alone. And surely he realized that by now. You'll wear yourself out. You can't bear this burden by yourself. If you don't have an Aaron and a Hur and many others by your side, you will fail and you will falter. You see, for all of the faith, all of the meekness, all of the spirituality of Moses, Moses was the meekest man in the world. He still was not strong enough to do this. The task was simply too great for him. His flesh was too weak, however willing his spirit was. He needed the help of others. Beloved, this is exactly why God gives the minister elders. And this is exactly how the elders ought to view their task, as we will see in Exodus chapter 18. It is that no man can raise his hands in this way in uninterrupted fashion by himself. He needs the elders there to help him to lift up his hands. 
to strengthen him when his hands hang low. He needs the congregation too. Otherwise he's apt to fail and to falter. We will keep seeing this in Moses. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. But also I think we can apply this point more broadly. Who among us is able to bear the spiritual work involved in the Christian life alone? We come to the New Testament and we see the constant admonitions to bear one another's burdens, to help your brother in his spiritual duties, to strengthen the hands which hang low. Beloved, we ought to look at the Christian life like this, to see Moses here and to realize none of us can do it alone. We all need the help of our brother. We are all apt to grow discouraged and weary and tired, to find that the flesh is weak. We all need good brothers by our sides to bear us up when... We are faltering. But for all the priority of the spiritual side, let me come to the other side. I make so much of Moses, but we need to realize how important Joshua was to all this. We need to realize that in Joshua, there's another side to the Christian life. There's a place for Joshua's in the church. Not all can be ministers. Not all can be elders. You need men to fight. I don't mean this literally. Though we do know in the case of Israel, fighting was also necessary. As a theocracy, this was essential to her uh, success and her entry into the promised land. But even if we were to look at this purely from the standpoint of the church, which is what I propose to do, the need for fighting, the need for courage, and so forth, we see that neither office is, is to be despised, the Moses and the Joshua, and that the Spirit distributes gifts as he will. Yes, you need the man on the hill praying with his helpers. And this is the greater part of the church's success. But you also need men on the ground doing the hard work of war. It's also interesting to notice here, and I alluded to this earlier, but here let me make it explicit. That this is the first time we find Israel fighting. We don't find her fighting in in Egypt, but here we do. Before it was all the Lord, but now it was Joshua and his men. Which is another picture of the Christian church in her warfare. At first in our bondage, God delivers us. The work is all his own. But as he brings us into the wilderness, there are many battles he calls us to fight. And we can't just hide behind the man of prayer, Moses. No, we have to engage in the fight. In other words, there is an entire life of spiritual warfare that we have to wage. And while prayer is the greater part of this war and the means by which it is won, it isn't the only one. It isn't the only thing God is calling the church to do. There are many ways we're called to fight, beloved. But my only point here is let us not shrink from the battle. There is need today for valiant men like Joshua who will engage in the enemy in the name of God. Who I I mean, who will engage the enemy in the name of God. Just as there is need for godly ministers like Moses to pray for and instruct the people. Let us see the value of both the Moses and the Joshua and never exclude one for the sake of the other. Let us never become so spiritual that we think we don't need our Joshua's in the church. Practically, I'm saying that the church lives in a constant state of warfare so long as the enmity exists between the two seeds. Satan is always opposing us. The world is always against us. And yet we are told in the New Testament that by faith we're able to overcome the world. And by faith we're able to extinguish all the fiery darts of the enemy. In other words, there isn't a single battle that the church is called to fight that she isn't able to win. So long as she wages the war in the name of the Lord, as Joshua did here. 
Is it not evident to you that the church is never at rest? Not in this world. That she is always in a state of conflict. That there is always need to contend for the truth once delivered. And so I'm saying again. That the church needs men like Joshua. Valiant and courageous men who are not afraid of the battle. And who do not shrink back from the church's enemies. Certainly such men make good elders and deacons. But it isn't necessarily so. The battle is ever coming to us. We are not seeking it like Israel here. And yet it is chasing us down. The question is, are we ready to fight? Of course, there can be no victory without prayer. Without a constant drawing down from heaven God's almighty power. As Moses did on the hill. But sometimes, if I were to be honest, I find myself wondering about the church. Whether the church has any will to win. Or if she's just content to be overcome every time she is assailed by her enemies. Do we know anything of what it is to fight? But let me notice this one last thing. I've been speaking of Moses and Joshua and the, the office they both assumed. One was called to pray, the other was called to fight. And we have in this a fitting picture of Christ. It's impossible to miss. Uh, what preacher could help himself uh, but to say, Christ is our Joshua. Christ is our Moses. He's both all in one. Like Moses, he lifts up his hands in holy prayer before the throne of grace, ever appearing there on our behalf in the presence of God, interceding for the church's welfare, never faltering, never stumbling, never growing tired. You see, that's what he means in Hebrews when he says he ever lives to intercede. He never fails in his intercession. He never grows tired or weary. He is constantly looking after the salvation and the peace of the church, seeing to it that her faith does not fail. But he's equally our Joshua, who defeats our enemies. One of the shorter catechism answers says this. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his And our enemies, and I thank one of the members for pointing this out to me after last week's sermon. It's a great description of who Christ is. Did you ever think to think of him as a great warrior, as we read of in Exodus? Whenever his kingdom and his kinghood is described in the New Testament, it is especially this last element that is stressed. How he subdues our enemies. How he must reign until he has subdued all his and our enemies under his feet. And that he will not stop reigning until he has. And even then he will go on reigning for all eternity. Christ must be seen as like Joshua. One who contends for the welfare of the church. One who fights. One who conquers. All his and our enemies. He does not do so without prayer. Yes, but he does not do all by prayer either. He fights. And he must reign until he places all enemies under his feet. And he will. That is the promise of Christ to the church. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And he will never fail us. That is the message of the New Testament. And a vital aspect of the good news of Christianity. The triumph of God in history. The appearance of the kingdom of God. Just as surely as he assumes the place of Moses. That of a constant intercessor. Who never grows tired or weary in his intercession. So he assumes the place of Joshua, the great captain of our salvation, who contends and fights for the church. And his greatest victories are not yet. They are still to be seen. 
We ought to look for them with great anticipation to wait and see what the Lord will do. And so let us make our faith to depend upon that and to rest upon him and never to think that our prayers or our labors can save us. You'll never be a Moses or a Joshua, not in the way that Christ is. Not even they in themselves were able to save anyone. If he does not pray for us and if he does not fight for us, conquering both his and our enemies, all will be lost. But again, we know that he will, for we are his and it is the joy of his office to plead and to contend for the church for whom he bled and died and conquers. Amen. And let us uh, return praise to God for the word of God by standing and singing together hymn number 62.